Okay, welcome to get in my. I just like saying that for the record. You're all like always here and hear me say that every Monday. Sorry we didn't have it last week. I wasn't feeling good. Robin wasn't feeling good. And Monday Night Football was on, so. No, we weren't feeling good. Um, so we are in verse 10 tonight of James chapter 1. And we'll do a little bit of review. Uh, for the newcomers, Jamin and Joni, because I know that Emily's already heard this, Ginemai is a Greek verb that means to become something other than what you were. It literally means to, to become into a state of existence. Um, so you're transitioning from one state of existence, such as a sinner, into a, the state of existence as a righteous person. Uh, and we know righteousness by a couple different terms and concepts. Um, two terms that we have used in the past, positional, uh, we deal with this in positional ref in reference to our position in Christ. For some reason, my speech and my brain aren't working together right now, so bear with me. Yes, Sorry. Robin. Just so they know, the notes are also online, so don't feel like you have to write everything <coughs> down. And, like, you can overwhelm. You can. You can write whatever you want, but just so you know, they're online. Yeah, and if you have a question about something, just raise your hand. I'll get to you as, as soon as I can. Um, don't feel embarrassed or anything like that. Big deal to me. I, I love answering questions. It's more fun to me than a lot of other things. So um, two terms that we want to know positionally. It's a reference to one's position in relationship to something else. That makes sense, right? Um, but we use it in the sense of being in Christ or that when we're saved, when we've accepted Christ as our Savior, God takes us out of the circle of, or sphere of death and places us in this sphere of life or this location of life in Christ Jesus. And because of our position in Him, Ephesians 1 tells us that we're blameless, uh, we're holy, we're redeemed, we're adopted as adults in the family of God. Um, a bunch of these different blessings that Ephesians 1 tells us that we have are because of our position in Christ. We're outside of Christ. We don't have those blessings. Experiential is a reference to one's experience or what we call our walk with God um, in Christian terms. So while you can be positionally holy and blameless, experientially, you may be in sin. And that's kind of how the Bible deals with these concepts, is that you may positionally be holy and blameless in God's eyes because you are saved by grace in Christ. But in the moment, you're sinning and you're producing fruit that is actually considered bad by God and it's not beneficial to you. So there's kind of a difference between positional and experiential in a nutshell. <clears throat> uh, the book of James is authored by God, as are all the books of the Bible that we have canonized. Uh, the writer that he used and the Holy Spirit used was James, the brother of Jesus. Sorry. Were you thinking about my joke? Because I was. <laughs> no, what's your joke? Oh, go ask him. No. 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 All right. Okay, so the James that we know is the brother of Jesus, right? It must have been tough to be the brother of Jesus because his mother Mary often, I'm sure, looked at him and said, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? Okay. Ha, ha, ha. Funny, funny, funny. It's brilliant. I love it. I. It's not my own joke. I stole it from someone else, but I'm not telling you who. Okay, it was written. What? No, it wasn't actually. <laughs> It was written about 45 to 50 A.D., best we can tell. Um, you can probably lock that in more about 47 A.D., but that's just personal opinion. And it was written to this group of people we call the Diaspora, who we identify as the believing Jews who were scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution. Uh, we had the Roman civilization that was kind of ruling everything, and then for some reason they allowed the Jews to kind of be like this sub-ruling group that ruled themselves within the Roman structure, but kind of outside of it at the same time. It was really kind of a weird... Uh, weird issue. But then within the Jews, when people started accepting Christ, the Jews themselves started persecuting other Jews. Hence Paul, or as you may have met him first in Saul on the road to Damascus. He was a, a member of the Pharisees that was persecuting believing Jews who were now Christians because of their belief in Jesus to be the Messiah. So you've got kind of the Roman persecution and then you've got the Jewish persecution against Christians who were their former Jews that have accepted Christ. We call them the, the diaspora uh, because they're scattered out. Diaspora is Greek word meaning dispersed. Uh, so James actually writes this book to the dispersed believing Jews uh, for a couple different reasons. What James deals with is this topic of true spirituality. A lot of times, especially today, we get to a church service and people say, oh, you've got to believe, you got to have faith, you got to be spiritual, you got to do this, do that, do, do all these things that makes you spiritual. Well, James deals with this concept of what true spirituality actually is and looks like, and it is not the external religious acts that we do. Those are a part of the, the structure of our relationship. They should be a part of the structure of our, of our relationship with God. 
but they don't define Christianity. Christianity is defined purely based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything has to flow from that first. James deals with four evidences in this topic of true spirituality. So he shows us what true spirituality is in this concept of faith and action, um, self-control, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, and patience, and then submission to God through prayer. Uh, when we talk about the pray, with ceasing, pray without ceasing thing in the later part of the book, we'll be talking about this concept that we are in a relationship with God where we are submitted and com constantly communicating with Him, willing to hear what He says and willing to speak to Him about what's going on in our life as well. So James teaches what true spirituality means, and then not just what it is, but actually the mechanics or the processes of what true spirituality looks like and how to implement it in your life. So it's not just like, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. It's love your neighbor as yourself, and this is how you can do that. This is why you can do that. These are the reasons. This is how this process works. It's really cool, actually, when you see the mechanics. Um, pisteos is the Greek word we get for faith. Uh, when you have faith, belief, or trust in Greek, it comes from either pisteos or pistis, um, two words that have the same root, and it basically means a complete dependency, and it's based on response to something. Um, simple example, you hear truth, you either respond to truth with a dependency upon it, or you reject it. Okay, So the feminine concept of that now identifies mm. that faith is based on response, or what you depend upon is based on your response to something. You have to hear something in order to depend upon it. You have to see something in order to, to depend upon it. That's the concept. Um, those are kind of the mechanics that we're talking about. Faith identifies a relationship between two or more objects. And that relationship is one in which the objects or the persons are completely dependent upon, or one of the objects or persons is completely dependent upon the other for something or action. This is going to be huge when we get to chapter two. Understand this concept. You're all sitting in a chair right now or a couch. You are depending upon that chair to support you. In other words, you have complete dependency or faith in that chair or that couch to support you. Okay, that's the, that's faith in a nutshell. And that's why I give you the example of sitting in a chair. Um, it's not a mystical, feely type of thing. It's, it's become that to a large degree of, oh, you just got to have faith. And, okay, well, I've got faith, but I'm not sure what that is. The Bible identifies faith through this complete dependency model. And anytime you have trust, belief, believing, um, or faith, it comes from this root word. Yeah. And then in, in the New Age movement. Yeah, totally. Now, we've already gone through nine verses, um, and the book of James opens up in, in dealing with true spirituality. He deals with the, the first thing that I believe the persecuted Jews were dealing with, and that being trials and tribulations. Yeah, they're being persecuted for the faith. They're being attacked spiritually from other sides as well, um, and I'm sure that within their own, own selves, they're having to deal with their sin natures. So in first, verse 2... James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials and tribulations. And the doctrine of trials and tribulations that we've developed from verses 2 through 9 so far starts with this, is that when you encounter trials, enact trial protocol. What is trial protocol? If you go back and want to look at the in-depth study of it, um, you can go back to, I think, our third session on our PowerPoints, either on Facebook or on the church website. And you can see what trial protocol is. Basically, it says that when you encounter trials and tribulations, when you come upon them, your job is to relax and rest in faith. Now, when you do that, and the way you do that is by having an attitude of joy, remembering that you are not stuck on this earth, but you have eternal life with God. And in eternity future, you'll be able to have that. So this present suffering of the trial isn't really an issue. That attitude of joy can then govern your thought process so that while you're feeling physical or emotional pain, you can actually bear through it mentally and allow that trial to, to mold you and shape you. Once you've enacted trial protocol, having that attitude of joy that governs your thought process, um, the Bible says then in verse 3 that you are to utilize the faith action principle or the concept that you depend upon Bible doctrine, it works for you. Just like you depend upon the chair to hold you up, when you understand what the Bible says about something and you put that doctrine or you, you put your weight upon that doctrine and let it support you, it produces a work in you. So you actually don't end up doing the work the, um, the protocol or the principle of that Bible doctrine does. Um, the faith action principle we see in verses 3 and 4 actually produces what we've called the faith action product, which is spiritual maturity. If you've 
rested on Bible doctrine and what we call trust God through a trial. Um, and not, again, in the mystical sense, but in the sense of put, uh, co putting complete dependency upon him and your relationship with him, then the trial isn't removed from you. You go through the trial, dependent upon God to guide you through it, and the result of that is spiritual growth. See, we go through a trial and we say, get rid of this. I don't want this. This is hurtful. This is harmful. I don't like it. But God says that we're supposed to be re able to remain underneath that trial and allow it to do its work in us, to produce within us a spiritual maturity. Uh, number three, if you find yourself lacking, and this is verse 5 in James chapter 1, the understanding of how to use Bible doctrine in your situation, you're supposed to enact wisdom deficit disorder protocol. What's well, James chapter 1 verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. The actual Greek is way more emphatic than that. It's a command to request what is rightfully yours from God, being that wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? The Greek word in verse 5 is sophos, and it means an understanding of how to apply what you've learned to your situation. So the concept is that we go through in our relationship with God and through the Holy Spirit, we go through learning and studying scripture and developing protocols and principles that we can operate from. So that when we are faced with a trial, we say, okay, faced with the trial, implement the attitude of joy, attitude of joy is in, okay, it's producing faith, uh, the faith action principle is producing the faith action product within us. From there, we, if we don't know the Bible doctrine to implement in that trial, Bible says, ask of God. Now, it's not, it doesn't say ask for the, the knowledge. It says ask for the understanding of how to use the knowledge that you have. So you may not have the, the knowledge of what to do in your situation. But the Bible says that there are principles that we have that if you don't know what the knowledge is, you can actually learn the knowledge and then understand and ask God for understanding of how to apply it to your situation. I know this is a lot, especially if this is the first time you're hearing it. Um, hang in there. What happens when you act, enact wisdom deficit disorder protocol is that you have two choices. Either wait for God to give you what you've asked for. The Bible says that he gives to all without reproach and without casting it back at your teeth. In other words, he doesn't say, you stupid idiot, why are you asking for this? You've already asked for this 20 times. I've already given it to you 20 times. Why are you doing it again? No, he gives liberally and freely and abundantly. So if we ask, God's going to give it to us. That's the promise of scripture. When we ask, our job is not to then say, okay, I've asked from God, that's great, but in the meantime, I'm going to go seek out my friend, I'm going to go seek out um, this book on what I'm dealing with right now, I'm going to go seek out all these other avenues and sort out my different situation. We're not supposed to sort out data on our own. And this is what verses 6 and 7 talk about. We're supposed to depend upon God and do what he's already called us to do while we wait and wait for him to give us what we've asked for him, from him. Now that's dependence upon God, isn't it? We ask and we sit there and wait for him to give it to us while we're doing what he's already, we already know he's called us to do. We don't typically do that, do we? We ask, God, can you help me out here? And then we try and figure it out on our own still, and then hopefully God throws it in there. You know, that's kind of our mentality. Yeah? Can I ask a question on that? Mm -hmm. So, I guess, the means by which God can provide wisdom can be many avenues. And so he may provide it through the person we go ask advice or through giving us the wisdom solve the problem is like I don't know, I get very few lightning bolts. It's through <laughs> thinking through right. it or reading the Bible. It's not like, oh, obviously I should do that. Sometimes sometimes, it sometimes is. he uses other people. But okay. that's God using other yeah. people versus you going out and seeking so, out the answer from someone and then coming to conclusion on your own. We're supposed to let God reveal it to us, either through a person or through him directing us to go read this specific book or something like that. Right. Yeah. So you don't ask for the advice, you just wait for someone to give it. I know I'm meaning to be a filter. I'm just trying to understand. No, it's the and if you go to our study yeah. on these verses, um, the the concept is that the person who is actually seeking out the answer on their own after they've already requested it from God is actually God's holding it back from them because they've asked Him, but now they've said, "Okay, God's not telling me. I'm going here. I'm doing this on my own." Anytime we do anything on our own, and that's the emphasis here, we have a problem because now we're not submitted to God in the model of humanity that we're actually going to show in just a second here. Um, so. The, the thought is that if God in your relationship with him and in our interaction with him and the Holy Spirit's guidance of us, even knowing, knowingly or unknowingly, the thought is that he moves us to the right position to get the information that we need, either if it's through a pastor or a parent or a friend or a kindergartner. Um, so he may have already moved us to this position of having those people in our life. Right. Where we would ask them for it. Yeah. What and do you think? So. Ask them for advice, but still be trusting God for the advice, even if they're the avenue of the advice. Is that... 
If God is instructing you to seek that person out, yes. Because our, our concept here, and I don't, let's see, where's our model of humanity? Our concept here is that God's our initiator. And every second of the day, we're supposed to be submitted to him. Now, we sometimes have this umbrella view of God is that God's out there. He communicates to us. He's a personal God, but I live my life using what I've been taught and that kind of stuff on my own. It's, it's us doing the thinking, the, the processing, all that stuff. Well, we're supposed to actually be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by ourselves. And this is, this is where in, in Philippians um, chapter 2 it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought not robbery to be made equal with God. The concept that is being employed there is that Christ was God, obviously, and we're not. But in his time on earth, he recognized that his opportunity to use his omnipotence or his, his power, his um, understanding of, of all things, um, his, his, just, his sovereignty, all the stuff that defines who God is, and then that includes the, the ability to govern and make volitional decisions on his own. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't make any decisions on my own. What I did is what the Father sent me. Father, Father initiated, I responded. And that's our model that he represents. That's how we're supposed to live every second of the day. Now, we don't. <laughs> because a lot of times we don't understand the mechanics of how that works. And you can be too, what I want to say, conservative on it and too liberal on it at the same time. Um, you can take it to the point of, well, does God want me to put my right, foot, right shoe on first? Or my left shoe on first. Do you want me to tie my shoes with the bunny loop or the you know different? And sometimes God may say, "Hey, put the right shoe on first because there's spider on the left." But, but most of the time, it's just going to be like, "Get up, get dressed, do what you're called to do." You know? Right. And then it would be, "Wow, God told me to put my right foot on." Yeah, so you see how that works. Now back to because it's a little rabbit trail. I got you. Back to the concept and the question you're asking of, is it is it wrong? I guess. Can you rephrase your question since I jumbled it up? Yeah, go. I, it sounded like you were saying, Damon, so it sounded like you were saying, so if if we're not supposed to go out and seek answers, should we not even ask advice from wise people in our life already? And it sounds like what you were saying that God has moved us in the position of having any wise people in our life. Like He's already initiated surrounding us with that wisdom. So if we gain that wisdom from them because they've been put in that position, yeah, and right. Well, and it's it gets to that point where you have like the the Hurricane Katrina people, where they're shooting at the rescuers that are trying to save them, saying, "No, I want God to rescue me." Well, He sent the person to rescue you. You just have to let Him. Okay. Well, it's the same. That's the same concept that I think you both are getting at. Is no, it's not that you you know close your close your ears off or don't listen or don't observe what's going on. Because the Holy Spirit will use people to say to, to give you the information you're looking for. But it's going to be the Holy Spirit doing it through that person. Not like physically through that person necessarily, but through the way the person speaks or just something that catches your eye about it or something like that. Versus you just being locked up in your room praying and that's all you're doing. You're not supposed to not listen or not act already. You're supposed to continue to do what you were designed to do in the first place. And rely on God to provide that information. Ultimately, it's a mental battle. Do we sit there and do we try and figure it all out on our own? Or do we ask God for the wisdom, wait for him to give it to us, and in the meantime, continue to do what he's already called us to do? And in that process, if we're living our right relationship with God, he will bring the answer out to us. So that's kind of where it, does that clarify a little more? Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. And this comes down to actually what you were asking too, is that maintaining your spiritual life. In other words, with that model of humanity, showing that God's the initiator and that we're the responder. If we start initiating for ourselves, start making our own decisions outside of God or outside of the Holy Spirit's control, um, even start evaluating things on our own to the, sense that, to the sense that we're doing it on our own, with our own power and our own strength, out of fellowship with God, then we have a problem. And we must... Use First John one nine is what we call it, and confess our sins, get back in fellowship with God, because He's the one that's in charge, and we're not. So maintaining our spiritual life is super important in this process of trials and tribulations, because if we go through a trial and, and it comes upon us and we say, "Oh, hold on now, I've got to figure this out on my own," what are we doing? We're being distracted by that trial. We're not growing spiritually because we're not dependent upon God or Bible doctrine. So maintaining your spiritual life so that you're operating from the spirit life format, which is the concept of 
the human spirit that you have. Um, and if you look at the, if you look at part seven or part eight, um, you get an anatomy of, of humanity. Uh, actually, I think we do get into that a little bit in review. Um, that talks about how man was originally created and some of the Hebrew phrases in that. We don't get to the Hebrew tonight because it's his review part. Uh, but I definitely recommend looking at that. That's honestly one of my favorite studies because the Bible tells us how we were designed and then we see why we actually need to have a spirit birthed in us again. Um, and that concept is to restore fellowship and operation of our human spirit. We must use First John 1, 9 to get back in fellowship with God. Questions? No? Okay, cool. Okay, this is kind of a, just a diagram I put together real quick about kind of what happens is that when you're faced with a trial, you enable trial protocol, that attitude of joy. And when you have that attitude of joy, that then enables the faith action principle because you have that attitude of joy that, allow, that governs your thought process, you're able to depend upon Bible doctrine. Rather than freak out about the situation and try and get away or whatever, you're, you're able to just say, okay, you know what? God's working through this trial in some way. So I'm going to trust him. And when you do that, it then produces the faith action product, which is spiritual growth. And it may produce multiple points of growth within the same trial. It may be that one trial is only for one point of growth, and it may be a small point of growth. We don't. That's not up to us. But some way, God's using them and allowing them to develop us and grow us spiritually. And that's the reason that James says that we're supposed to have this attitude of joy, is that we can have it because we know that if we trust in Bible doctrine, that actually produces within us spiritual growth. If we don't, then it doesn't produce spiritual growth, and we got a problem. Okay, here's what I alluded to a little bit before. Um, just a couple slides on the anatomy of humanity, according to Scripture. Uh, the doctrine of the trichotomy of humanity is that humanity is comprised of three parts. That's what trichotomous means, three parts. Um, and they are the physical body, the soul life format, and the spirit life format. We know that humans are, are, have a, a body and a soul. Okay? When human death occurs, the soul and the body are separated. That's how it works. You can have a body on life support, and the person can be long gone. That body can stay on life support. The body can be functioning for 20 years, but the person's gone. You pull the plug, the person's gone. You can have the body and the soul together, and that's when you have, have soul life, as we call it. Okay? Spirit life, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Okay? Now, what's a spirit? A spirit is, in humans, the ability to understand spiritual concepts and the things of God. Okay, now here's the thing that, that a lot of people get confused upon, and the Bible actually is very clear on this, but it just kind of goes by the wayside because Holy Spirit and spirit is just kind of like a, it's kind of like a loaded word that we kind of just assume we understand too. The Holy Spirit communicates through our human spirit. It, it works together. If you don't have a human spirit, your Holy Spirit doesn't communicate to you at least not through spiritual concepts. This is why Jesus spoke in parables. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that the reason Jesus spoke in parables was he was, and the, the people he spoke to was specifically non-believers, those outside of his spiritual group, the ones that couldn't understand spiritual doctrine because they didn't have a human spirit. They weren't saved yet. Uh, when the fall of man occurred, we lost in our genetic makeup the spirit life format or the human spirit. Now, what that means is that we became dichotomous or made of two parts, the physical body and the soul. John 3, 5 to 6 is the verse that we are, have as a cross-reference there that says that man is then in need of the rebirthing of the spirit or the human spirit. So when we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells us and we actually have a human spirit born into us. That's the spiritual birth. The Bible says we have to be born in water, which is physical, and spirit in order to be, um, have eternal life or to be saved. So the spirit, that human spirit there, or the spirit in verses 5 and 6 of John chapter 3 refers to the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not born. He indwells. So there's a lot of study that can be done on that. Um, this is from the phrase, Hebrew phrase, breath of lives, um, which in your Bible is breath of life. Um, when God breathed into Adam, or Adam's form at least, he breathed into him the breath of life in English. In Hebrew, it's breath of lives, plural. It's more than one life. The fall of man um, and the phrase that says, you will surely die, it's actually literally in the Hebrew, dying, you will die in the future. Um, and it's an instant death that then precedes a future death. And we have an instant soul or spirit death and then a future physical death. Um, I highly recommend this study on our website, not just because I like our website and the studies and stuff, but if you're interested in all what I'm saying, this totally changes your thought process about a ton of things. And it totally under helps you understand now kind of the whole gospel message and why we need 
a savior isn't just because we're sinners, but because we physically lack something within us that allows us to communicate with God. It's really cool. Um, the model of humanity, which we get from Philippians 2, and then uh, pretty much any gospel, any book of the New Testament, talking about how Jesus lived. Um, Jesus showed us how to live. He didn't show us necessarily the things to do. I mean, he gave us some of that too, but he showed us the relationship structure, that God is the Father, he's the initiator, and our job is to do what he says as a responder. Um, the Greek grammar totally indicates this all the way through, even to the point of making men like Jamin and I feminine to identify this responder thing, because that's what the feminine gender does in Koine Greek. It identifies a responder or someone who is a, uh, or something that's based on response. Okay. Now, what happens when we live, imagine if that bottom oval goes side, sideways or goes equal to God. That's how we typically live. We think we have the right because God gave us a decision-making capability to actually decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, what we want to believe. You know, that's not accurate. That's not true. We weren't designed that way from the beginning. We were designed to respond to God, which is why when he speaks, a lot of times we just kind of start listening. Um, if, if God were to actually speak to us out loud, or those times where you know the Holy Spirit speaking to you, how compelling is it? See, it's partly because we're designed to automatically listen. Yeah, can you give me a tissue, please? Thanks. Um, so what happens when we decide on our own what's going on in our life and what we're going to do, and we can do this, we can totally do this in a church service capacity. Um, a personal testimony for like four years of my high school career, I was serving, but not in my relationship with God. It was, it was next to God. I was making my own decisions, doing that on my own, not in submission to God. Now, serving the church is a good thing, quote-unquote, but it was actually sin the way I was doing it because it wasn't out of my relationship with God. Um, that probably just opens up a lot of, like, huge can of worms that now leads to a lot of questions for you guys, but uh, I'm going to skip it for now. So the point is that if we have the two of us side by side and we're not submitted to God, we have to submit to God and get back in that process. When we do that, then we're identified as living it righteously in our, in our experience doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. What's going to happen when we choose to sin is we're going to bring that oval back over here. So the Bible says we're tempted and drawn away. We're going to get that in a couple weeks. And that we actually are drawn away from God. And the concept is that uh, we lose our submission to God when we choose to act on our own and ignore what God's instructed us to do. When we start initiating for ourselves and responding to ourselves or our emotions or our, our lust pattern, that kind of thing, we start breaking this model of humanity which Christ showed us while he was on earth. How you guys doing? Hanging in there? Okay. All right, now when we do that, we actually operate off what's called a human viewpoint. Now, when I say sight-based there in the parentheses, I'm not talking about just our eyes. I'm talking about anything that we observe through any of our five senses. Fun study if you like science and anatomy and stuff. There's one that we deal with the whole brain and what happens when we actually make, when we see things and where it goes and how it gets to our brain and what happens when it gets to our brain and where it goes if we believe it, all that kind of stuff. Um, for the most part, though, human viewpoint is a process of thought or a manner of thinking which is based on data which is perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of the human world system. Now, what's the human world system? The political, the social, the cultural, everything related to humanity in this world is the human world system. We have a human world system, we have a, a um, cosmos diabolos, which is the devil's world system, and then we have cosmos theos, which is God's world system. We have three different world systems that are trying to operate on this earth right now and tell me why there is chaos. I mean, it just makes sense, okay? So if we're operating off a human viewpoint, we're operating off of perception based upon our senses. What we see, what we feel, that kind of stuff that, that comes in. Now, divine viewpoint is quite the opposite. It's based off of what is instructed of us rather than what is perceived by us. Um, some people will split hairs and say, well, how can you learn anything except to observe and perceive it? Well, the Holy Spirit in the Bible teaches us that actually we have to counter human world system and cosmos diabolos or the devil's world system by implementing God's world system pr uh, principles. In other words, when God says to have an attitude of joy during this trial, that's a, a principle of God's world system, that when you do that, this is what happens. Now, the human world system says that when you have a trial, you get out of it. You can get away from it because it hurts. That's how we operate on it. But divine viewpoint is a process of thought or a manner of thinking that's based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. So in other words, if God had set this world up, which he did, 
and then it? <laughs> it was at first class. And <laughs> you're a little concerned, aren't you? It won't be the first time. Don't worry. If, if God set this world up and man hadn't fallen and Satan hadn't already fallen, what do you think it would be like? You can kind of look back and get a glimpse of it, kind of, because there's a whole dispensational process and framework that goes on with different people at different times. But you can kind of look at it in the Garden of Eden as this is how God set it up. This is how it was designed to work. That's what we're trying to get back to. Not necessarily Eden, but the God, God's world system and that, and that structure. I'm just curious who was. Oh. Oh. Bummer. Okay. So when we operate off of human viewpoint, we're sinning. Okay. When we operate off of divine viewpoint, we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're letting God's word direct what's going on in our life, or God's principles. Okay. Verse 9. Whew. We're getting to verse 10. It's coming up. This is what we looked at um, two weeks ago. I hate when we take a break because I always want to say last week and I have to, didn't change my format of thinking to two weeks ago. The verse in uh, James chapter 1 verse 9 is, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. The phrase brother of humble circumstances from the original language, the Koine Greek, is a phrase that refers to someone who lacks physical resources. It actually talks about someone who is lowly or doesn't have a lot. Um, now, the phrase glory in his high position that word glory is actually a command form in the Greek, and it's a command for the humble brother to take pride in the position he has, not in being lowly physical in his physical resources, but in dependence upon God. Who are the ones typically that are have an easier time depending upon God? The ones who don't have a lot of physical resources. I mean, how can a how can a rich man enter in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus was faced with that question. I mean, what did he say? He got to sell everything off. There's the whole eye of the camel or the your eye gate, depending on what theological process and, and framework you want to look at in your study on that passage, because it's kind of controversial. But the brother of humble circumstances is, co is commanded to not be proud of how little he has physically, or to take pride in that, which humanly we'd say, you know, you should be proud of what you've got, even if it's nothing. But no, God says, forget what you've got. You need to take pride in the position of dependence upon me. And because he's lowly, he doesn't have a lot of things, that believer is more able to do it than, say, someone who, like we're going to look at tonight in James 1.10. Verse 9 and verse 10 are kind of like the same thought, and so they're connected by a Koine Greek word day, which is like our English word but. Um, it's a soft contrast. That's the word they translate it as and because of the, the soft contrast concept. Um, so if you want to change that to but in your head, it, it works. But the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Okay, simple verse, right? Check this out. James turns his attention from the humble, lowly believer who lacks physical resources um, and also social status. This includes social status as well. From that person now to the other side of the scale with the, the rich man. Um, de haplusios is the phrase that we have that starts that off. And there's that word but that I told you was translated as and. James uses the word plusios, which means rich. And it's in the sense of one who is well-to-do with earthly possessions. So we're thinking like upper echelon of society here. Okay, Someone who has an abundance of resources. Some of the dictionaries you look at when you look at the word plusios, they, they say an abundance of earthly possessions. Um, there's a couple of different concepts there, but the concept is they have more than what's average and more than they need. So you're thinking first class, upper class citizens instead of middle class or, or lower class. Now, these upper class, the rich, um, the plusios, these are the directly opposite of the tepenos that we had in the lowly believer. Tepenos is the word for lowly um, or humble and humiliate. Or, yeah, humiliate is often tepenos anyway. Um, that's what we had in verse 9. So you've got the lowly believer and then you've got the rich man or the rich one technically. Because the word man actually is in the original language. So here's kind of our, our comparison contrast. And I do this just kind of for the sake of drawing a diagram. But you've got Adelphos Hatapenos on the left and then Haplusios on the right. Adelphos Hatapenos is the brother of lowliness. He lacks money, property, equity, social status. And human viewpoint says that he's at a disadvantage when he goes through a trial. Okay, say it's a medical trial. The person with, without the physical resources, the money, to handle the medical trial, people, humanly, we're going to say, man, this person's going to have a tough time. It's too bad he's not rich. 
Well, the rich man has an abundance of money, property, equity, and social status, and it's considered to be at an advantage because he's got all these physical things to use when he's faced with a trial. Last week, we made the statement that trials and tribulation don't discriminate. Okay? They don't choose whether you're rich or poor. You go through them either way. Now, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. It's an interesting phrase in verse 10. Uh, I want to note here that the original language does not have the verb to glory. Um, and that's why if you look in your Bibles, you'll probably see that it, the fr that little three-letter or three-word phrase is to glory, or at least glory, is probably in italics. Anytime you have italics in your Bible, it's not placing emphasis. It's actually saying that this phrase is inferred by the Greek grammar, but it's not actually literally in the Greek uh, or the original language of its Hebrew in the Old Testament. So the original language doesn't have this verb to glory. We had that verb back in verse 9, kakostho, and we're going to see that the implication is there. In fact, if you look at the next line, it says that the implication is there because of the link of this verse to the previous verse through that conjunction day. Of the rich man is to, or the, the lowly man is to boast in his humble circumstance. But the rich man is supposed to glory in his humiliation. And that little is to glory is inferred because it's connected to the verse before it. So the kakosto from verse 9, the glory, is linked to the plusios man the rich man, and it is his action to perform as well. So he's supposed to take pride in his humiliation. Okay, now, kakasso, which is the word we have inferred from verse 9, is a verb which means to take pride in something. Okay, so we, we know first thing that we've got this thing that's going to have to be discovered. We have to learn what this thing is. Because there's going to be someone that's taking pride in that thing. What's that thing? Okay, the rich man, and the kakasso in that form is a command, is commanded to take pride in something. However, it is not in his social status or in his abundance of physical resources, but rather he is being commanded to take pride in his state of being made humble and dependent upon God through trials and tribulation. When we made the statement that trials and tribulation don't discriminate from the rich and the poor, it's because trials actually have nothing to do with what you've got externally. It's a test to see what your character is, to see how you're made of. Uh, when we're tempted, and when we get to this process in James, in the, in the next part of James, uh, as soon as we get through verse 12 here, James chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to get to temptation, the pro process and protocol there. When we get there, we'll see that there's temptation that is doing the same thing that tribulations do. They try and test your character to see what you're made of. Are you going to stick up for what you know is right? Are you going to hold Bible doctrine and, and trust God, what God says about it, or are you going to take what you think is good? The rich and the poor, the... the the amount of resources really have nothing to do with that. That comes down to who you are as a person. Okay, and it's easier for the rich to go through a situation because they have more resources. But it's harder for them in many ways, oftentimes, to choose to submit to God rather than to use their resources to get them through a trial. So the rich one is commanded here to take pride in his state of being made humble or unable to depend upon his riches or his resources for the sake of depending upon God. The phrase in auto tai nosai, goodness gracious, um, starts with this preposition, so it makes it a prepositional phrase. Cool, all right, English majors. Notice the preposition in. It identifies the location wherein the rich man is to take pride. Now, when this word is used, think about setting up a perimeter. We call it a sphere, or in the sphere of, or in the location of. If you've set up a, a fence or put something inside of a ball, where is it? It's inside. You can shake that ball around, you'll hear it rattling around, right? The, so, so take humiliation or this being made lowly because you can't depend on your resources and put it in that sphere. This is the location. And what it does is it puts emphasis specifically on that. There, it's hard to convey the way that the Greek attitude kind of comes through in that. But it really puts a focus on the fact that he's being made low because he can't use his physical resources during this trial and tribulation to grow spiritually. He can use it to, to grow humanly, to get out of it humanly, but he can't use it to grow spiritually. And so in that sense, he's being made lowly. So it's in this concept of, of the rich one being made to depend upon God rather than his resources that he's supposed to take pride not in his physical resources or the fact that he has a lot of money or a lot of social status or a lot of friends or whatever, contacts. It's in this concept that he's being dragged down, that he's being brought to the point where he has no choice to depend on God. 
So it's within the sphere of uh, the rich one's humiliation that he's supposed to take pride in. Tatapinosai literally means the being made lowly, hence the use of humiliation. Think about a time in your life when you've been humiliated, okay? And I don't know if this is true, but it seems like girls get humiliated a lot more than guys do. Anyone want to weigh in on that? And I think it's just because girls are just mean. I mean, frankly, guys are like brutal sometimes, but they're never like mean spirited kind of. Not really. So it seems like to me girls, and this is just personal observation, observations that I've not like, I've done major studies, but it seems like, it seems like girls get humiliated more by girls. Yeah. Yeah, by other girls, typically. Oh, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> Jonas, never coming back. I know some mean spirited guys. Yeah, no, that's not what I was trying to say. Is that there's no mean spirited guys? But it seems like because. <laughs> you just found one, right? I know. Okay. So be- it seems like girls get humiliated more, um, just because of the jealousy or something that that is out there. And, and it might be like you said, Emily. It might be that they talk about it a little more. Because I think you're right. Guys really don't talk about it when they're humiliated. They like go off the corner and just be silent. And go do something like go build something or tear something down, you know? Um, but this think about a time when you've been humiliated in your life and how you like, and what it does is it takes your thought of yourself and drops it down. You end up actually losing self esteem. And it's, it's that same concept with the rich man is that he's got this physical resources and he hits this trial and, and, and he realizes that, you know, I can't even use this. I'm down here now. I'm at the point where I have to trust God. I've been humiliated from my physical resources to the point where I have to trust God. That's what we're talking about here. So what makes the rich man lowly is the fact that his riches don't obtain for him the spiritual maturity which the trial demands and produces within him. James gives the reason in the remainder of this verse, and he starts with this word hati, which means because, or has been translated because, literally means that. Um, Hati host is a phrase that kind of establishes a comparison it doesn't kind of, it does, between this rich one who's been made low and the flowering grass. Um, the phrase literally means that like, so you can think of it, um, if we look, go back and say that the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, that like the flowering grass, he is passed away, he passes away. I think that's the, the way the New American Standard at least terms it. Um, so that's a little more literal rendering. Now, this comparison of the rich man to Anthos Kortu, that's misspelled, which is why I hesitated. There we go. Anthos Kortu is, is what explains the reason why the rich man, who's now humiliated because his physical resources and social status are of no effect in his situation towards building spiritual growth or getting through the trial and tribulation properly, it's why he can take pride in his lowly position. Okay, so because like the flowering grass, flowering grass comes from anthos kortu, which is misspelled there also. Apparently I was building a wheel track that was incorrect. It refers to the flower of grass found in fields. Now this is great, because there are hay fields all over the place. And we had dandelions, right? What happens when a dandelion gets ready to, to seed out? Get the puffball. Favorite puffballs. That you can pick and you can blow them all over the place preferably on someone else's yard because they just kind of sprout up everywhere, right? Um, that, that's kind of the concept. Is that there's this flower, this blossom that has come out. I know that the dandelion, that's not the flower. All right, I get that. It's the seed part. But <laughs> it's that same concept of a flower that's blossomed and now it's bloomed. But what happens to that flower after time? It goes away because it dies. So you've got this thing about this grassy field and then you've got the flower. Now the flower is the focus here. The Greek uses the nominative case to identify the subject, and it uses onthos with that omicron sigma, that O snake looking kind of thing, the OS kind of thing, to identify that the flower itself is actually the focus of this, this part of the verse. It's the subject. Now, core two is genitive, which means that it's the possessor of onthos. So the grass, or the grassy field, is the owner of this flower that's budded and blossomed and bloomed. So you've got this picturesque meadow with a flower. Okay, we saw some of those climbing over uh, or hiking over by Rainier over the summer. 
Now, why do I mention that? Because the way that the Greek works is unbelievable. That it actually identifies a possession of the flower by the grass field. And I know you guys are thinking, okay, Todd, it's really not that cool. It is. Okay, it's super cool. I wish I could explain it in a way that you would understand that part too. Um, or at least share my appreciation for it. But that's not, that's not my job. Um, so anthos cortu is this flower that's in this grass. So it's, it's literally flower of the grass. It's kind of just almost a poetic, beautiful phrase. Now what happens to the rich man? Or the flower of the grass. Okay, check this out. Paraluesite, tie, is a future middle indicative verb. Okay, we'll get to that. Just ignore that for now. Paraluesite, lucite, well, I can't say that right now, is a verb which means he will go by. Okay, when we mean go by, it's that concept of pass away, which is why they've translated it that way, but literally it means go by. And the kind of the mindset of it or the attitude of it is that there's this timeline that's moving that God has a plan set up for the ages, for this earth, for different people and different times. And in that timeline, as that timeline moves and progresses, the rich man moves along on that timeline. And time progresses and the rich man goes by. So you get this concept of passing away or this mortality concept of man exists and man ceases to exist. Rich man exists, rich man ceases to exist. So it's kind of like a flowing movement. Um, this is used to describe the rich man and emphasize that he is finite and perishable. In the same way that the flower of the grass and the field will die off, so will the rich man. Okay, now what this is not talking about is salvation. Okay, it's not saying that the rich man isn't going to be saved. What it's saying is that the rich man, because, because the rich man has a lot of physical resources, when he dies, what happens to those physical resources? They don't come with him. So he's back to this humiliated, lowly stand, standing in God's eyes. Because God's eyes, God doesn't look at the physical resources, and they don't come with us. They stay here. So it's not talking about the fact that he won't go to heaven because he's rich on earth. It's talking about he will no longer be rich when, this, when his time on earth is over. Now, here's the... We said it's a future middle indicative verb, and here's where we go in that voice. Uh, that's number two right there, the middle voice. This tells us that the subject, in this case, the subject is the rich man, participates in the action of going by or passing away. So his, his, somehow, in some way, he participates in this process of going away. Now the tense, um, this is the most easy one to understand because it's almost the same as it is in English. Tense talks about a type of action, not the time of action. In Greek, rather than in English, it talks about the, the time, when an action occurs. But it actually identifies this as a future type of action, not an action which will occur in the future. That's how we kind of understand it, though. Uh, so, paraluesite, thai, is a future tense verb, which means he will participate in the action of going by in a point in time in the future. So, right now, when the statement's made, the passing or the going by will be in the future. That one's pretty easy to understand because we have a correlation in, in English that's pretty close. Now, it's also an indicative mood, which is number one on that list, which identifies reality. So when, when indicative mood is used, the, the writer and the author, being God, is saying that this is the case. This is reality. This is how this works. So you put all that together, and you get this concept that paraluestai, as a future middle indicative verb, means he will participate in the action of really going by in a point in time in the future. It's emphasizing the fact that this rich man at some point in the future, is going to cease to exist. And it's placing the emphasis on the fact that, hey, he's really not going to exist as a rich man in the future. At some point in the future. So the richness of the, richness of the man will pass away just like the blossomed flowers of the grassy fields die off. I don't know if you can say it any prettier than that. It, it just almost has a beauty to it. Alright, because of para, para lucitae, the rich man is reminded that his physical possessions and social status will one day be removed from him. Therefore, during the time in which his physical resources are abundant, he needs, instead of trusting in his physical resources, to take pride in his dependence upon God and Bible doctrine, which does not pass by or go by. It doesn't paralucitai. Aren't you glad I didn't call again in my paralucitai? The time goes by, okay? Um, so, whether... He possesses many physical resources and none at all. The believer, the believer, the believer, 
The believer undergoing trials and tribulation is to depend upon God for deliverance from the situations rather than on their physical resources. Now, physical resources does come back to including people and books and that kind of stuff as well. Um, and it's not that God can't use those things, but let God use those things. Don't make those things be used, if that makes sense. Physical resources may... What? Yeah, don't let them be God, that too. No idols. Physical resources may ease the physical suffering of the moment, but they do not purchase spiritual maturity. Okay, duh, right? I mean, that makes sense. But at the same time, the physical resources will fade away when this life and world goes by and leaves for the eternal kingdom of Jesus that's going to be here in eternity future. After God's plan for this world, we have this kingdom of Jesus that rules and reigns forever, of which we are a part if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our physical resources don't matter in light of that. So the believer is to utilize the faith action principle or dependence upon Bible doctrine and in their relationship with God rather than faith in their possessions or dependency upon their resources to carry them through a trial. Doing so, when we do this, it produces in a spiritual maturity, which we have identified as the faith action product. Now, spiritual maturity is the point behind trials and tribulations. God lets us go through things that we don't like. And it's used as a discipline process, not a punishment, a discipline. There's a difference. Discipline is training. Punishment is to harm someone because they did something you didn't like. Okay, discipline is actually beneficial to the person rather than beneficial to the person who's disciplined or punishing. Um, you can think of it like a runner disciplines his body by running. If you're going to run a marathon, you don't go out and do it all in one day, right? Hopefully not. You go out and you run a, a few weeks, you run five miles. and a few more weeks, you run 10 miles. and a few more weeks, you run 15 miles. And you kind of build up to it. You're training. You're disciplining your body to be able to handle that. That's what trials and tribulations do. They discipline us to be able to grow spiritually and work and walk in our spiritual relationship with God. Question? So we say that uh, trials, trials discipline us for spiritual growth, uh, but it seems like if you look at the early disciples, the trials and tribulations were also put on the disciples so that God could be glorified through them by opening the prison doors or whatever. Like, is that another reason he sends trials and tribulation, or is that just like... That's the ultimate point of everything that God does. So what, what trials and tribulations do for us, this is that's what we're talking about. Okay. But when we will will submit to those trials and we'll remain underneath them and and do so in a way that is dependent upon God and what He's taught us, that glorifies God. And you can tell there are people that go through trials and you're like, Man, how did they do that? And what do they always come out with? So I wouldn't have been able to do it except for God. And you, you, if you sit down and talk with them, have coffee with them or something, you hear the whole story and you hear how God walked them through it because they were willing just to let him. It's an amazing thing. It changes your life. So the believer is better equipped, trials or trial, to live out the life to which he has been called for the furtherance of the glory of God. And that's where we're tying that in, Emily, that little last sentence about this is all for the furtherance of the glory of God. Um, and so that's our study for tonight. You can all breathe again. Any questions? Any, if one want to look at anything else that we talked about tonight that we can go back on and look at and cover again. Yeah. High position. Because I was trying to tie verse 10 to verse 9.